Verse 20, riding on her donkey, she went down under cover of the mountain, and David and his men were coming down to meet her, and she encountered them. Now David had been thinking in vain. So she actually comes as barely 400 men, 400 men with blood vengeance in their eyes. And she stands as one lonely woman with her probably a few servants and all these donkey loads of things and just stands in the middle of the road with this semi-truck, so to speak, barreling down on her and is just hoping to God that he'll stop and listen to her words. Now David had just been thinking in vain, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the desert. I didn't take anything from him, but he has repaid my good with evil. God will severely punish David if I leave alive any until morning, even one male from those who belong to him. So as David is galloping down, he's just circling, I'm ticked. How dare he insult us? I protect them. He's rationalizing and justifying his actions. Now, to give you an idea of what mindset that David is in, that word male in the Hebrew actually means if I don't kill every one person who pisses against the wall. It's a very derogatory reference to who a male is. And so this is not, this is a guy who is enraged. He is using derogatory terms of these people and he's ready to kill everybody. And he's even swearing in the name of Yahweh. May Yahweh punish me if I don't massacre the entire village. Oh, David, such a godly man. (laughs) When you really pay attention to these stories, you're like, wow, they kind of left that out in Sunday school class. It's like, I think you're beginning to realize that with the entire Bible. This is what he's saying. This is his mindset. When Abigail saw David, she got down quickly from the donkey, threw herself down before David, and bowed to the ground. She is on the ground, in the dirt, totally submissive, totally vulnerable, begging for mercy, basically. That's the idea. And completely submitting to his authority as the absolute authority. Which, once again, one should not have to do this with a godly king. Yet that's not the world that they live in right now. Falling at his feet, she said, My Lord, I accept all the guilt, but please let your female servant, and the word she uses here is maidservant, like I belong to you and I do whatever you want me to do, kind of a a terminology. Speak with my Lord. Please just let me have, you can go kill them, but just let me have like a few sentences before you go kill everybody. But please let your female speak to him with my Lord. Please listen to the words of your servant. My Lord should not pay attention to this wicked man, Nabal. He simply lives up to his name. His name means full, and he is indeed foolish. But I am your servant, and did not see the servants my Lord sent. Basically, she's begging like, you will never get anything logical out of him. And I bear all the guilt on this. If it would have come to me, things would have been different. Don't let this fool ruin the lives of everybody else. Verse 26, My Lord, as surely as Yahweh lives and as surely as you live, it is Yahweh who has kept you from shedding blood and taking matters into your own hands. Now may your enemies and those who seek to harm you, my Lord, be like Nabal. Now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the servants who follow my Lord. Please forgive the sin of your servant, for Yahweh will certainly establish the house of my Lord, because my Lord fights the battles of Yahweh. May no evil be found in you on all your days. She says, I am so, I am praising Yahweh that you have stopped and decided not to kill everybody in the village. Now, is that true? No. 
she is acting like his conscience. And she's beginning to speak as if he's made that decision already. Because sometimes when really powerful people are enraged and they're motivated for something, sometimes it's good to talk as if this is all their idea. It's not right that you should have to do that, but that's the world that we live in. Remember, wisdom does not always ask what is what I should, what is right about the world, what I should do. Wisdom asks, what do I do in the light of the world? She says, I'm so glad you decided to stop. Here's everything you asked for. There's no reason to kill everybody because everything you asked for is right here. And I'm so glad that you've decided to fight Yahweh's battles, <laughs> not your battles. This is not Yahweh's battle. This is not how he handles things. And so she's putting all these things. She is speaking to him. She is speaking logically when he should have been thinking that way. This is what David should have been thinking. Instead, he's become very emotional. Please forgive this sin of your servant, for Yahweh will certainly establish the house of my Lord, because my Lord fights the battles of Yahweh. Yahweh is going to establish your house. May no evil be found in your days. When someone sets out to chase you and take your life, the life of my Lord will be wrapped securely in a bag of living by Yahweh your God. But he will sling away the lives of your enemies from the sling's pocket. Notice how she's using analogies to speak to his profession. I remember you being a slinger and a keeper of sheep. And I'm going to use, may God sling your enemies away like you slung stones away. It's kind of like using football analogies with people to get them to understand, ah, that's what she's doing with David. And Yahweh will do for Yahweh Lord everything that he promised you. He will make your le- you a leader over Israel. Your conscience will be overwhelmed. Your conscience will not be overwhelmed with guilt for having poured out innocent blood, for having taken matters in your own hands. When Yahweh has granted my Lord success, please remember your servant. And she ends it with this last statement. Won't it be awesome when God puts you on your throne over this nation one day and you can sit there with a clear conscience knowing that you haven't killed any innocent people because you fought God's battles and not yours. Amen. And on that day, remember me (laughs) because I'm the one who kept you from violating your conscience. And that's how she responds. This is a very rational, very theologically biblical moral argument. Did Halemelech give Saul a rational, logical, biblical argument? Yes. Did Saul listen to it? The question is, how does David respond? Verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Praise be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has sent, me the, sent you to me this day. Praise be your good judgment. May you yourself be rewarded for having prevented me this day from shedding blood and taking matters into my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as Yahweh the God of Israel lives, he who has prevented me from harming you, if you had not come so quickly to meet me by morning's light, not even one male belonging to Baal would have remained alive. He recognizes the hand of God. And he submits to her wisdom, and he sees Yahweh using her to change his mind and he repents this is the difference between David and Saul now listen this is still jacked up I'm not sugarcoating anything that David has done I'm not justifying anything David has done the narrator isn't either there is no way that I would ever let David into my daughter's lives 
Even if he repented, there's no way I'm going to have a guy who thinks and talks and is tempted to go like that at any moment. Anywhere in church ministry leadership or anywhere close to my daughter's in marriage. However, he's still deep down inside, despite his weaknesses, despite his faults, despite his temptations, despite what he's tempted to do and almost does, he is sensitive to what God wants. He wants what God wants. And we all know what it's like. We don't always do what God wants, even when we want to do what God wants. Even when we're trying to do what God wants, we are pulled into our own temptations, our own habitual patterns, our own faults. Yes, maybe they're not as drastic as this, but we also didn't grow up in a culture where everybody lived like this practically. If you were a warrior, you did. We are a product of our culture. Maybe we're not tempted to go bloodshed like this, but we are tempted to go into other things that our culture keeps pushing in our faces and our lives and our minds all the time. And we've hurt people in different ways with our pride and callousness and our desperate attempt to get ahead in life and keep up with the Joneses. David is not a godly man. David is not a righteous man. David doesn't always have the greatest heart. But it's not too much different than us in different areas. But all in all, he wants what God wants. He's trying as best as he can with what he has and the culture that he lives in under the pressures that he is in. Remember, nobody knows how they're going to act until they're in that situation. It's easy to judge people and then forget you never had a childhood and a neighborhood like they did. And who knows what you would have chosen to do if you grew up in that house as well. And when David is presented with people that God puts in his life to put on the brakes, he does put on the brakes. And he stops. And even when he realizes screwing up, he repents. And that's what the Bible looks at. The Bible does not call him a godly man. The Bible does not call him a righteous man. The Bible doesn't call him an incredibly obedient man. The Bible calls him a man who wants what God wants. And he pursues it, and when he screws up, he is willing to repent. And he's willing to stop. And that's really mostly what the Christian life is. If you can have that kind of a heart, God can deal with everything else. He can transform your mind and renew it. He can change your character. He can change your behavior. He can strengthen your resolve against the temptations of the culture if you have a heart like that. If you don't have a heart like that, then you're completely on your own being an obedient, godly person. And we know lots of people are really godly in their behavior, but their hearts are their hearts are dark. There's still pride. There's still arrogance. And this is what the narrator is trying to present to you. Yes, he looks really dangerously close to what Saul is. But in the end, he's nowhere even close to that. Behavior-wise, maybe. But in his heart, no. Verse 35, Then David took from her hand what she had brought to him, and he said to her, Go back to your home in peace. Be assured that I have listened to you and responded favorably. Now he still takes all that food. She did offer it to him. So it's hard to say, like, okay, I'll take the bribe anyways. I'm going to repent, but not all the way. Or if it's just the reality is he really is starving. And she really did give it to him. And it is a culture of hospitality. And it's probably what Nabal should have done anyways. When Abigail went back to Nabal, he was holding a banquet in his house like that of a king. So he's acting like a king. And he just opposed Yahweh's anointed king. 
And Nabal was having a good time and was very intoxicated, drunk. She told him absolutely nothing until morning light. And in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him about all the matters. And he had a stroke, which more accurately means his heart kind of gave out. He was paralyzed. And after about 10 days, Yahweh struck Nabal down and he died. Did Nabal deserve to die? Yes. God killed him. Did he deserve to die because David decided he deserved to die? Did he deserve to die because David decided that he was going to do the work of God for him without being given permission? No. But he did deserve to die. And notice that Abigail said, Yahweh will fight your battles and he will sling your enemies away like a stone. And by the end of the week, Yahweh has fought David's battle for him. Because David trusted. Now remember back, did the priest of the house of Eli deserve to be die, according to the prophecy of God? Yes. But did Saul have the right to take matters in his own hands and execute that judgment? No. And therefore, he has reaped the judgment upon his head. Once again, David is different here. Because yes, Nabal had the right, he had, David deserved, sorry, Nabal deserved to die, but David did not take matters in his own hands. And that's a big thing. It doesn't matter whether it's right. It doesn't matter whether you have a biblical argument for it. It doesn't matter whether you can rationalize it. It doesn't matter if this is deserved. All that matters is what does God want you to do. And if God says, go out and make this right, and I give you permission, then go out and do it. Like the Philistines. God gave David total permission to wipe out the Philistines. He can do that with a clear conscience and clean hands. But that doesn't mean he has the right to transfer judgment to everybody else either, like Nabal. But in Nabal's case, God wasn't saying you can go out and do it. This is the hardest thing for us. It doesn't matter whether last time God said do it. It doesn't matter whether you can biblically argue it. It doesn't matter whether it's legal or just or deserving. It only matters what does God want you to do. And that, that's the hardest thing for us is because in some ways God has given you a brain. He has given you wisdom and decision making. But we all know that no matter how wise we are and how gifted we are in discernment, our desires can take us any direction very quickly. And the only thing that really keeps our desires and our wisdom in check and that we know we're in the right place is when the Holy Spirit and Yahweh speak. And it's so easy for us to think, but this is logical, this is rational, this is reasonable, this is even biblical. But remember, a lot of things were done in the name of biblical reasoning. Like the enslavement of the black people of America, the genocide of the Jews at the hand of the Catholic Church, the Crusades, all kinds of stuff, all in the name of very rational biblical reasoning in their minds. And we've got to surrender our thinking in the little things as well as the big things to God and really truly seek Him out. This is what it means to be led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And David has answered this. And God responded by fighting David's battle for him. Verse 39. When David heard that Nabal had died, he said, Praise be Yahweh who has vindicated me and avenged the insult that I suffered from Nabal. Now, it's not exactly why God killed him, just because David was insulted. Yahweh has kept his servant from doing evil, and he has repaid Nabal for his evil deeds. Then David sent word to Abigail and asked her to become his wife. So he acknowledges that God did what he promised he would do. He'd take care of David. But at the end of the week of mourning, David sends for her and says, 
be my wife. Now, in some ways, you're like, David, this is a really good choice for a bride. Okay, this is an incredibly wise woman who is strong enough as a female to stand up against him to do the right thing. That's good godly character. But the problem with this is he's already married to Michael, who he hasn't done anything about going back to her. So the servants of David went to Abigail at Carmel and said to her, David has sent us to you to bring you back to be his wife. She arose, bowed her face to the ground, and said, Your female servant, like a lowly servant, will wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Then Abigail quickly went and mounted her donkey with five of her female servants accompanying her. She followed David's messengers and became his wife. David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel. And the two of them became his wives. Now Saul had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Patiel, son of Laish, who was from Gelium. So not only is he married to Michael, but we find out he's also married another woman by the name of Achinom of Jezreel. And now he's marrying Abigail. So what is he beginning to do? Collect wives, which is a violation of Deuteronomic regulations for the king. And this is where he is starting to become to act like it. So we see the temptation to become a warlord as a king right here. But now he's collecting wives. Now what's interesting is that every single time it refers to these women and stuff, it always refers where they're from. And that's important because these are treaties. Achinom is from Jezreel. That's the northern part of the nation. And so he's solidifying his connection to the north. Now he's marrying Abigail of Carmel, who's of Judah, and she's a descendant of Caleb, because it's also important that you know that too. Why was it so important that you know she's from Caleb? Because Caleb was one of the most influential, powerful people in the tribe of Judah. His family was. He had more cities than any other clan under his control. And so now David is securing a connection to Judah. Now David's already connected to Judah in some sense because he is from the tribe of Judah. But it doesn't hurt to have as many political ties to this tribe as you possibly can, especially when you're on the run. He's beginning to seal political ties. And not only that, he's also married to Michael, who seals his connection to the previous kingship, Saul, and the tribe of Benjamin. Now he's abandoned Michael. But remember, in God's eyes, he is still married to her. God makes this very clear throughout the Bible. He's still technically married to her. And the reason he's not with her right now is because he left her. Now you're like, yeah, but he was on the run and she helped him escape. And that was just the nature of circumstances. Yet, in the last years that he's been on the run, his family has come and visited him. 600 people who are discontent and in debt and all that kind of stuff have just happened to find him and start gathering around him. He's married a woman, now married another woman. We're going to find out later that he's going to have kids and they're going to be on the run with him. And all that time Michael can't come to him. And all that time that he never sought out Michael and brought her back to him. It's not been important to him. This is suspect of David's character. And this is a blatant violation of the Deuteronomic regulations for kingship. Remember what motivated him to want to kill Nabal? Wealth. And now he's going to get Nabal's wealth, which means he's also violating the collecting silver and gold. David is showing himself to become corrupt. And we're also going to begin to realize as we keep going on, David has a weakness with the ladies. He has a weakness when it comes to women. 